Good morning. Herb Oscar Anderson. Hello and welcome back to the return of the morning mayor. It's the return of the return of the morning mayor. And of course, I am joined here today by my two lovely cohorts, Carla and Suzanne. Hello, ladies. Hello. Today we have Jim Davis on. He is a native of Buffalo, New York, and is currently the owner slash CEO of ExtremeCom, a digital video and audio production service in South Florida. And uh, he's been in broadcast all of his life, second generation to be exact, and he's following the footsteps of his mother, who was a singer on WKBW in Buffalo. And he began his humble beginnings in radio as uh, in western New York. And I wish that I had been here for more of his conversation because I was born in western New York. But this is actually really cool because um, from what I've gathered of Mr. Davis. He is a historian of what things were like back then, quote unquote, when your dad was on the air, Carla. And um, he's going to help really frame up what it was like. Hello again. This is Carla and Suzanne with our podcast, The Return of the Morning Mayor. And we're discussing everything radio, especially my father, Herb Oscar Anderson, who was on WABC in the 60s. I think the the, uh, glory of radio in the 60s. And we have a very, very wonderful friend of my father's who actually my father worked with at the end of his career, Mr. Jim Davis, who's down in Florida. Uh, I guess you were a disc jockey up here in in New York. I know Joe Condon was a good friend of yours. Um, And I think my mom said you were the general manager of the Wave down in Florida. uh, Just correct me if if I'm incorrect. You're doing great, Carla. Yes. Uh, (laughs) I was a lifelong lifelong broadcaster. My mom started in the radio business in 1933 in our hometown in Buffalo, New York. Uh, She was a singer on the live days of radio back when we had the big bands. And uh, mom was on a big 50,000-watt station that covered up and down the eastern seaboard. And it was uh, I knew from the get-go that that was going to be my career. So I started off like a lot of people did, like your dad did, uh, in small little markets and worked uh, my way up through the the broadcasting business and uh, uh, ultimately uh, got into programming and general management. And uh, and yes, I... I had the distinct honor of, of working with your dad um, uh, starting in uh, 2003. And I'll tell a little of that story if, uh, yes. if that's a good place for us to begin. That's great. That's perfect. Well, as you know, your mom and dad uh, were kind of snowbirds. They lived north uh, in the nice weather and south in the summer weather and uh, uh, in the winter weather, rather, and had a beautiful place right on the ocean in, uh, in Fort Pierce, Florida, just to the south of us. I'm in Vero Beach. Right along the east coast of Florida, about oh, about an hour's drive south of Cape Canaveral, and uh, about six miles away from the beautiful Atlantic Ocean. And of course, your dad had a gorgeous place right on the top floor of a, a condo that overlooked the Atlantic. And when I first came to town, people said to me, "Oh, Herb Oscar Anderson lived here," and I went, "Oh, that's amazing!" This because uh, uh, he was certainly he was certainly a legend in my mind. And somewhere along the way, I I initiated a call and said, "Herb." 
I'm the general manager of this group of five radio stations here, and I would love to have lunch with you, and I'd, I'd love to get to meet you and learn a little bit about your uh, situation here and see whether you had any interest in uh, in coming on board to do a show. And he said, ah, thank you, Jim. He says, that's very nice. He said, but I, I'm frankly, I'm very retired. I'm very happy, and I, I really don't have any interest in getting back on in the broadcasting game again. Uh, so I, I kind of let that go, and but we kept talking, and and uh, uh, and then in September of 2004, uh, the I'm sorry, 2003, the hurricanes came. The first one was Hurricane Jean. It came on uh, Francis, rather Francis came on Labor Day in 2003. It was a terrible storm, and um, uh, it was a Category Two. And then three weeks later, it was followed by Hurricane Jean. And uh, during that period of time, uh, uh, it was just a whole different world in terms of the broadcasting business, because obviously we turned our stations upside down to serve the public. And, right. and so, so anyway, uh, your dad called me and said, uh, Jim, uh, Terry and I are a little concerned about our condo uh, because we're so vulnerable. We're up here, I think, on one of the top floors and and the wind is blowing. And what we'd like to know is if we come down to the radio station, we'd bring our own cot. Uh, could I help you out behind the mic? And I said, Herb, what an honor that would be. And so he and, and Terry arrived at the radio station. Uh, and, he, you know, the microphone was like a magnet uh, for Herb. And uh, <laughs> he was just before drawn you know it, to it. He was, <laughs> oh, he was, he was behind the mic. And uh, he was singing songs. Here we were in the midst of a, a devastating hurricane. And Herb was on the air singing songs, taking calls from listeners, and just giving him this amazing, calming voice, this, uh, this voice that could only say things are going to be all right. And this is the truth. I had to pry him away from the microphone 35 hours later. 35 uh, hours? Yes. He I would, thought it was he would, 24, but 35 hours. He, he would nap for a little while and then he'd get back up and then he'd be right in the studio again, taking calls. Oh, wow. And so oh, you could tell he just, he was just a born broadcaster. And uh, so anyway, uh, we, we talked and I said, gee, Herb, it would be so great if you could just uh, you know, consider doing, we'll do anything on your terms. If you'd like to do a a weekend show if you'd like to he said no nah, jim he said that uh, so I, I we brewed up an idea together i said what if we create a, a little one-hour show uh, and that show is called conversation mm -hmm. and it'll be a converse com a combination of you singing all your favorite songs telling stories we're going to break every rule in the radio book because this uh, broadcasters are going to say you can't do that on the radio well guess what Herb said, yeah, I'd like to try that. And so we began on Sunday nights at seven o'clock doing a show called Conversation featuring Herb Oscar Anderson. Mm -hmm. He and I recorded over 100 shows until the culmination uh, of, of our effort together. Wow. And during that period of time, in other words, we, we recorded over 400 segments of, uh, of this amazing man. Uh, when I recorded Herb, I was, I was always feeling like I was... Uh, kind of at the feet of Buddha, uh, <laughs> because I always learn things. I've been in the broadcasting business my entire life, but he used to, he used to teach me all the time. He'd say, "Jim," I said, "Herb, the way you introduce these songs, the the way you 
push these uh, artists. It's like the first time you ever heard it. And he'd say, Jim, the curtain is always going up. And I, I thought about how he used to entertain on the mutual broadcasting system with live entertainers. And for him, the curtain was always going up. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, uh, some of us, Carla and Suzanne, have a what they call an, an, an internal monologue. Um, uh, chances are that when you're thinking through things uh, about and you're not verbalizing them, you're kind of thinking them in your head. And there are two kinds of internal mon monologue. There are those of us that hear the voice in our head. And that's that's me. I hear the voice in my head, uh, uh, as a lot of people do. But his internal monologue was totally visual. And I said, what do you mean by that, Herb? He said, well, that's why I close my eyes. He said, when I'm telling stories, he said, I like to, I, I like to close my eyes and the words that I'm going to say appear in front of my eyes. And that's how he would tell stories. I, I want to tell you one quick narrative of a story that he told shortly before Christmas on one of our shows. This would have been about maybe 2015, I guess. Mm -hmm. And he told the story about World War II and how it was, a, it was a dark and horrible war. It was a war where so many people were getting wounded and dying. Um, but he set this picture of the battlefield of the war, particularly between the Germans and the Americans. And he said, and this is all with music behind him, he said, off in the distance there, there was church, uh, uh, church bells in the background. It was Christmas Eve, and somewhere in the distance, the soldiers hear the waning sounds of silent night. Yeah. And before you know it, there's a chorus of voices from the foxholes singing that classic song. And just for a moment, the fighting stopped, and they were all united in that spiritual moment of Christmas. I, I'm paraphrasing it. Um he did it so beautifully that almost every Christmas I posted on my, my Facebook page because it was, uh, it was part of the master. Um, you know, Herb knew everybody and, and they were always in touch with him. You know, I, I know he was good friends with Johnny Carson's lead writer mm -hmm. and uh, there were famous singers, Billy Vera, who had right. a wonderful song. I loved used to call him and I, and Laurie Hafer, uh, Lori was the lead singer of the uh, Hillside Singers, and I she like was the lead. To teach yeah, the world to yeah, yeah. That that's was. right. It became the it became the Coca Cola, Coca -Cola theme song. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, uh, Lori Hafer and her husband used to come in every Christmas into our studio. Uh, her hubby would bring the organ or the piano, and she would sing, and we would put together this hour of old time radio, just play, singing and playing. Such a magnificent storyteller, uh, always real, always from the heart. Herb Oscar Anderson was a, a, a big man, a big man in stature, um, to me, bigger in heart, uh, bigger in generosity. <laughs> I have a shirt, by the way. You know, he entertained on the Royal Caribbean cruise lines. Uh, he was an entertainer with them. Uh, he and Terry would enjoy cruises and Herb would get up and sing as he did so many places and he loved singing. 
singing. They made him wear these fluorescent green shirts that had Caribbean on it. <laughs> and he hated the shirt, but he had a whole carton full of them that they made him every night change a shirt, her, yeah. put a new shirt on. So <laughs> one day he walked in and uh, he threw me a shirt. And uh, I, I, I love that shirt. I, I treat it with care because it came from him. Like I say, he knew many of the big people, right. but when he would come to the radio station, he would stop at every doorway, whether it was somebody who put together the commercials or a person who was typing a log, he knew them all by name and he stopped. It wasn't like, hi, I'm here. It was like, Hey, Darby, what are you up to? How's the family? It was, I don't know. It's just, uh, it was just so, so real. Yeah. I, well, I know Joe Condon said that my dad always, after every show, would go down to the mail room and he would stop and and talk to everybody. But again, you know, I'm I I don't know all those stories, so for me to hear them, it, it's it's wonderful. Um, um, I know radio was uh, basically his lifeline, and um, I think when he left radio, he missed it, and my brother gave him a singing machine. And <laughs> that was probably the best thing that my brother ever did was giving him a singing machine because he would sit in his little studio in Florida and he would sing nonstop. And I always was in awe of my yes. father's voice because he never sounded like an 88-year-old man. He always had his voice. And I remember towards the end of his his career with you, he said, uh, oh, he said, I'm starting to sound like an old man. He said, I think it's time for me to stop. And for him, that must have been the hardest thing for him to have to do because it was his life, entertainment, people, meeting people, talking to people, everyday people. I mean, I think that's really what made him different. It was that he was just like a common man with common people. You know, he wasn't trying to be anything that he wasn't. When you heard him... It was it was Herb Oscar Anderson on the radio. Herb Oscar Anderson buying gas at the gas station, and you know, he, was he the same on the radio as he was off the radio? I mean, he was very genuine in the radio, but yeah. I mean, the same person. You know, some people are different yeah. in different scenarios. So I, I think my dad suffered um, a little bit of melancholia. You know, when he was on the air, that's his fans, his listeners, and. Um, I think when he got home, and especially when he wasn't on the air, he he could suffer with bouts of time where he was, I don't want to say depressed, like really, really depressed, but he would be, you know, thinking about down, the past. Maybe. Yeah, just, thinking yeah. about the past, thinking about the old days, the old days of radio. So, Jim, I mean, whenever anybody called him, it was really like a shot in the arm. It would pick him up. Because, you know, of his past, he had quite a dark past growing up, which really oh, yes. affected him later in his life. Um, and I think just that ending his life with those shows that you guys did for him was something that he enjoyed so much. I remember coming into the house, my husband and I have a huge garden, and I came in with heirloom tomatoes. And my dad looked mm. at those and he said, heirloom tomatoes. I'm going to do a show about heirloom tomatoes. Yep, <laughs> and and yep. he did. He did. He, he did. He looked it all up and he went in and he did a show about, you know, tomatoes. But, you know, I wondered if you guys were sort of like the first podcast, but on the radio. 
That's possibly. a good point, Carla. I, I don't uh, I don't claim that, but yeah, in many ways we were because we didn't have uh, we weren't a uh, we weren't just a jukebox that played three hundred records over and over. We were a, we were a storytelling show, and uh, and many of those stories, by the way, are from his origin. Uh, uh, we did a whole series about growing up in the orphanage. Um, as you know, um, uh, he was born in uh, in uh, South Beloit, in Illinois, and mm -hmm. uh, and his Swedish parents had moved to the uh, the New World in search of a better life. But of course, his father died shortly after arriving, and mom right. had to find survival work. And uh, they she was a housekeeper, and thus the kids went to the orphanage. I mean, he speaks kindly of his of his parents and of his sisters and brothers, although he really didn't know them well because yeah. they were all, they oh, were right. all separated. Uh, Herb was at, I think the odd fellows home outside of, uh, uh, outside of Illinois. Lincoln, and, uh, yeah, Lincoln, four, Lincoln. four years old. Basically yeah. that's where his family just sort of disintegrated. Um, yeah. but I will say that, um, I think there's a lot of things that happened in my father's life that he never talked about, especially in the orphanage. And there, there's quite a few things that now as an adult looking back at him, I can see, hmm, I wonder what happened there. You know, what, what exactly mm -hmm. went down? Because there's a lot of things that um, make sense now. But of course, as a kid, never made any sense but after right. going over his stories and and especially looking at the script that he wrote for a television show i go through that and i read it and i read what he wrote and uh, what he was trying to convey and actually the script came back he was an emmy award-winning script writer so there was nothing wrong with it but at that time in the 70s i don't think people wanted to watch dark television so they right. made it sort of as a comedy and, yeah. you know, that really, my father was like, it wasn't a comedy. It wasn't funny. You know, this is, these were real people in their lives that they went through. So we well, wonder too, well, Jim, as you said earlier at the beginning here, how your mind can see things differently and, and he would close his eyes and see things, but you wonder if that's a result of, I'm sure there were many nights he laid in bed in the orphanage and closed his eyes and that's, he saw a life that maybe wasn't living. Yeah. So maybe that was just his way of visualizing Escaping. You know, that persona, that, that escape, right? Yeah. yeah. Which you can well, understand. You're right, Suzanne. I think he was so cherished by, by listeners. Uh, understand he, he earned that he was, he was not a disc jockey's disc jockey. I mean, those of us in the radio career, we have, you know, DJ idols, uh, boy, they can talk up the records quick and tell funny jokes and, Herb was not that at all. He was not a disc jockey's disc jockey. He was a people's disc jockey. And, you know, uh, at the time, WABC, when Herb joined them, was the most lis listened to radio station in America. Um, by the summer of 65, which was the second summer that the Beatles came to America, WABC had a weekly listenership of 6 million listeners a week, which just to put that in comparison, um, a, a number one station in New York today might have 2 million listeners. So you know, think of this. In 1965, they had three times as many people listening to Herb as any other radio station. By the way, they only played 13 Beatles songs over and over and over again, but yeah. that's what the people wanted. Right. And, and, and Herb was hired because he was different 
different. Remember, rock and roll was not beloved by all. And perfect, perfect example of that is the advertising agencies really didn't want to have much to do with rock and roll radio stations. It was it was the devil's music. And so they kind of soft peddled it by having ABC News at the top of the hour. And they had Don McNeil's Breakfast Club at nine o'clock every morning. And they hired Herb Oscar Anderson, who was about as family friendly as any air personality ever could be. He was yeah. he was humble. He was kind. He was warm. He'd he'd say a prayer every once in a while and sing a hymn. And he would welcome mom, get the kids off to school. He was like I say, he just uh, he embraced his audience and they they absolutely loved him. He, he told me, uh, you know, he broke into the radio business at in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul. I think he worked at uh, KSTP when he, you know, when they gave him his first radio job, by the way, he was working overnight all night long for pennies an hour. And the deal was that he had to sell used farmer's jeans. Yeah. Uh, there was this uh, overhauls. company. That, overhauls. That's right. Overhauls. <laughs> Overalls. Overalls. Yeah. 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 yeah, I say malls. Yeah. Overalls. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, apparently there was this company that took the old jeans and washed them and cleaned them. And, and Herb would sell them on the air, I think, for a dollar a piece or whatever. And and he got a, a little slice of the action. And, uh, and yeah, he laughs about that. But he said it was the best training in the world because he learned how to market and how to sell. Right. And uh uh, That's what you just... have to do, though. You know, you have to sit mm -hmm. there and you have to sell those products and uh, believe in them. And that that's the exactly. the big because I listened to his show and it's, you know, the, all the ads that he had to read and everything like that. I just yeah. I, it just still amazes me. And I ask everybody that comes on and and talks about him. And I was like, how how did how did he get? To be the morning mayor, I know how he did, but I mean, how did he get that many listeners? Because it was like you said, it you know, cousin Brucey was great. Cousin Brucey was everybody's like you said, crazy disc jockey making jokes mm -hmm. and laughing, and you know, sort of a very watered down version of like a Howard Stern. And mm -hmm. but my dad was like, uh, you know, completely different. And I, it, it just amazes me that he was as big as he was. I would think people would, would, you know, just pass right over him. But apparently, like you said, that makes a lot of sense that rock and roll wasn't what we think it is now, you know, because right. I was born in 60s. Sue, you were born in 70s. Late 60s. Late 60s. And for mm -hmm. us, of course, when we look back at the 60s, all we see is the, you know, oh wow, the the music from the '60s and all that, and the 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 flower children, but it wasn't really accepted or or the norm, right? When, when was rock and roll really? When did rock and roll become a thing? I guess um, I would give Bill Haley and the Comets, uh, you know, probably the the heralding moment on that. They, uh, uh, Suzanne, they, you know, about 1955, uh, there was a, an influx of what was called race music you know it was black music that appealed to white audiences and uh, and boy it was really uh it was certainly looked on with shame by most and certainly the advertising agencies and uh, uh but about that time there was uh, uh bill haley and the comets had started to put a beat to some of the soulful music and before you know it by 1956 you had elvis entering the 
uh, the uh, the birthplace of rock and roll. He was an overnight sensation. And I would say then, you know, about 1960, you had the influx of uh, the Motown sound, the Supremes, the Temptations uh, for Tops. Then and you had the Nashville sound. You had the Philly town sound, which was accented by Dick Clark and the American Bandstand. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, things were coming alive. And Ed Sullivan's Sunday night show had a lot of rock and roll on it. Right, uh, and uh, and from there it was just a very exciting time. the The influx of the British invasion with the Dave Clark Five and the Animals and so many other groups, of course, the Beatles and the Stones. Mm-hmm. But um, it was uh, just a very fabulous time to be uh, on the air. I, I'm r- reminded, however, you know that that Herb <laughs> was always a farmer at heart. Well, well, um, yes, <laughs> you know he he uh, he he talks about. I had a conversation with one of his WABC engineers and he said, you know, Herb was just so relaxed at this. He, yeah, he would uh, just talk in between the records and sing a little bit, but whenever the, the, the song would start, uh, he would pick up a copy of the, uh, the latest farm newspaper <laughs> and he would read it in between the, in between the songs. Well, you know and what actually- it was? It was rock and dirt. And in fact, I'm looking at his album. What would I be? And he's in uh-huh. front of a huge bulldozer. So th- yeah, that's what my dad would read. It was a yellow, like a newspaper. I remember seeing the cover and it was rock and dirt. It was all big equipment. <laughs> that's what he would look at. I love it. And of course, uh, we'll tell that story a little bit later about his old Ford tractor. But uh, uh, when uh, uh, when he was at WABC, he would he would shave uh, while he was on the air, he had a little electric razor. And one morning he plugged in the electric razor and the station went off the air. Apparently the razor had a little short in it and it knocked WABC off the air. So they said, Herb, no more shaving while yeah. you're on the air here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I have some of those stories in the script that I wrote, but yeah, I mean, when you think about it and, and I remember him, he said that they, the engineers were running like crazy. We're off the air. We're off the yeah. air from one yeah. room to the other, from one because every second you're off is money down the drain. So yeah. and my yeah. dad's sitting there thinking, well, what what the heck's going on? <laughs> yeah. yeah, isn't that wild? But uh, you know, I mean, arguably he was far and away the most listened to morning man. And um, you you mentioned Carla, and I think um, cousin Brucey obviously mm-hmm. is still has much acclaim today. Right, but. At that point in time, uh, if you looked at what the sets in use were, in other words, think of this as ears listening to the radio, uh, about 60% of all radios were on in morning drive. That's the most important time period between 6 and 10 when your dad was on the air. Afternoon drive, where Dan Ingram held down the post, uh, there was about 50% or 45 or 50% of the sets in use. And at nighttime, after television took over, when Cousin Brucey was on, there were less than 10% of the sets in use. So it's very clear that, yeah, no, yeah. no question about it, as popular as Brucey was, and certainly he was amongst the teenagers who listened at nighttime. But Herb had the audience locked up. It was his 60% of the radios in use in morning drive that bought WABC its great success. Well, that's, I I, I never, you know, because every time you see something, it's always um, all the other disc jockeys. I never really see my dad um, mentioned as many as, as, as the other disc jockeys, but I was looking over the years from 1960 to 1968. 
68, I think dad was off on 69, that his scheduling never changed. He always had six to 10. I would see other people hop around and move around and whatever, but dad always had six to 10 for those many years. He never changed. He never moved anyplace else on WABC. So, no, Carla, what you say is important uh, to to note that there are not a lot of air checks of your dad. But remember, these tribute sites are put up by other disc jockeys, not by the public. Oh, okay. And um, as an example, Arthur Godfrey uh, was the most successful broadcaster of all times in the CBS radio network. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's hard to find. There are no air checks of Arthur Godfrey. He was just a common man. Uh, he had tremendous. Tremendous uh, listenership and later on viewership. The television network actually lost money for many years, and it was Arthur Godfrey that single-handedly supported the financial means of the CBS television network by his radio show. Yeah. Uh, it was uh, So I look at the same thing. Your dad, you're right. There's not a whole lot of air checks. That's why I treasure these 100 hours that I recorded uh, with him. Um, I still play them. They're, they're still magic to me. And uh, uh, and you know, in the eyes of the public, I'll, I'll tell you how the the public views him. I just want to tell you a, a story about maybe 2014 or 2015. I think uh, uh, Herb was well established with the the show that we were doing, and an opportunity came up. There was a a senior expo at our local Vero Beach Mall, and um, I said, Herb, let's let's go see if we can put together some kind of a a show for these folks. And he agreed and he worked in his little studio at his apartment and, uh, uh, on the ocean and put together about an hour long singing, uh, karaoke type style. Right. We played the music tracks on a CD player and he sang and he was in the food court of this large mall. Mm -hmm. I would say that the food court maybe held, let's say 500 people. And it was packed. It was actually when people we promoted on the air that Herb would be appear, appearing that day at the mall. Uh, people came from all over, drove from from Melbourne, from West Palm. They they packed this food court to hear Herb sing and talk in between. And it was uh, absolutely uh, it was amazing to me. I, I you know I afterwards uh, we had put together. Uh, some little three by five cards. They were, <clears throat> they were signed autograph cards that had uh, his signature on there. And, and we gave him a magic marker. It had ocean FM in the background. And, uh, and uh, he said, folks, if you'd like to come up, I'd like to meet you. And I'll give you a picture here if you'd like. And, and Carla, uh, the, the people in the audience lined up in a queue. Hmm. It took Herb about 45 minutes to get through the line of people who wanted to reach out and touch and talk to this man. That's amazing. Um, and he was, I mean, in, in, that, he died in 2017. So, right, I mean, right. he, he's, he wasn't a, a, a young spring chicken there. But were these listeners from Ocean or were these old listeners? Yeah, I was wondering that too, if they were ah, probably both. Well, well, as you know, we have a few New Yorkers in Florida. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, they flock here. Yeah. In fact, they, they're still flocking here for obvious reasons, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a wonderful place to live. And uh, just like your, your dad, we, we cherish this uh, lifestyle that we have. That audience, however, um, uh, I would say maybe 50% of them 
garnered their knowledge of him through WABC. Mm-hmm. And then others uh, probably were regular listeners. They were just folks who found him on the dial. We promoted him heavily on the air, but that audience uh, would have sooner met him than to meet the Beatles. And that <laughs> is the God's truth. He was just a magnetic magic personality. Well, I, I was talking to somebody and they uh, were saying that at the time when my dad was on the radio, that it was basically they were promoting the disc jockey almost more than the the music. Right. And, you know, now it's the music, not the disc jockey as much. And and I want to ask you a question. Do you really think that that was like the the zenith, the the best time of radio in that part of New York City? Because I know that was like the 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 city on the hill, as you would call it, for my dad always wanted to go to New York City and be on the top radio station. But do you think that that mm-hmm. was like the time, like lightning struck at that WABC with those disc jockeys, with the whole thing that was going on? Do you think it was just something very special that happened? I think there's a lot to saying being at the right place at the right time is a uh, is a key to success. So yeah, I, I wouldn't deny that. Um, I think the the radio business was absolutely on fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the early 60s, people just couldn't get enough. Uh, there was this uh, new brand of music. The adults hated it. The kids loved it. And uh, it was just all over every TV show, every every radio show was playing this, this new content. Mm-hmm. And, and um, at one point, by the way, there was almost... 700 releases a month of new music. Uh, every kid had a garage band and uh, they were recording it on their wallen sock. And, uh, and you know, before you know it, they had a hit record. And uh, uh, so there was just a, a, a veritable plethora of new music. And it was just uh, very exciting. Today, there's very little new music that comes out. And, and actually there's very, you know, the music industry today is pretty much dominated by the uh, the Japanese, the uh, the Sony Corporation owns uh, CBS Records and Tapes, Capital Columbia, and uh, and while the Japanese folks do know a lot about uh, development of uh, products, they don't know much about the new artist development, which is so key uh, into American music. Uh, we had uh, songmeisters. I, I think specifically of people like Clive Davis, a, na- mm-hmm. a name you know well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Clive Davis was the, the was the person who discovered. Uh, Barbara Streisand, he discovered uh, uh, Kenny Rogers, and so so just hundreds of other great artists. It takes a songmeister to be able to develop these groups, Uh, and we are lacking, we're lacking in songmeisters. So, uh, you know, the product today is... Quincy Jones was Quincy Jones a songmeister. Yeah, and it's it's, it's also important to remember that uh, Mm -hmm. we only had one strategy in rock and roll, and that was, uh, you know, top 40 music was, well, when you think of it, Barbara Streisand was a top 40 artist. Uh, that doesn't sound right. How about Tony Bennett? He was a top 40 artist with I Left My Heart in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you also had Elvis Presley at the top of charts, and you had Brenda Lee, a country artist who was singing, and that was a, considered to be a top 40 artist. So anyway, collectively, there was this whole uh, group of songs uh, a very diverse uh, feeling, and uh, and they were called top forty music. That was the music that was was selling. Now, the thing that really changed that was the uh, was the Vietnam War. Uh, if you remember, about the late sixties, there was a division that occurred 
there were people who were for the war and there were people who were against the war. And mm -hmm. the people who were against the war founded something called Underground Radio, which was the origin, uh, the origin rather, of uh, FM radio. And uh, they liked uh, to cut four of the Fuzzy Snake album. Uh, and meanwhile, the people who supported the law, they liked Disco Duck and Yummy, 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 I Got Lovin' in my my tummy so there was uh, let's call it the alignment between hip on one side and straight on the other side and that was the first branch in top 40 music and uh, by the way those those branches kept blooming and before you know it now there's hundreds of branches and you know you you might like speed metal or thrash metal or or easy listening but it's not all in one container like it was in the 60s so arguably i would say there's never been a time before uh, it, certainly in our lives, uh, like that period in the 60s uh, where we were all beating on the same drum. Yeah, well, it, it was, to me, it seems like it was exciting. So I don't, maybe some of the people who are listening here, I know Sue is an engineer and she works constantly with communications, but um, Sue, did you yeah, want- I guess some of the mechanics, actually you touched on something, um, Jim, for a minute. So just for those that are interested in how radio actually works, um, AM and FM, right? So I know the difference between the modulation, but you just touched on something. So FM radio, why would they choose to put certain things on FM radio? Some artists, maybe, yeah. if I understood you correctly? Yeah, Suzanne, I think um, FM radio was uh, was was the loss leader. Uh, most stations in the 60s were trying to sell off their FM stations because they were useless. They, uh, you know, basically, if you went into a supermarket, there might be some easy listening music playing in the background while you got your kidney beans off the shelf. But, uh, you know, that, that was that was uh, FM was a wasted medium. Uh, nobody had radios. Right. Um, the radios a, didn't have FM. Was that's I right. They didn't. No, they did not. In, okay. In yeah. fact, to put this in perspective, about the time that your dad was on WABC, you, you, if you wanted to hear FM, you had to buy an FM converter and mount it beneath your dashboard and plug it into your AM radio <laughs> so that you could pick up these obscure FM stations. So now, why, you know, just a question on it. So, so analog would reach further distances, correct? Right. But, but, but then the signal, uh, signal could maybe be distorted, right? More so. So when you get more quality out of an FM radio than an AM radio. Or is that not absolutely, true? absolutely. There's no question that uh, AM technology had kind of uh, passed by. I mean, you know, we all grew up on AM radio, and God, it sounded good to me. But uh, once you heard the first FM station, and you went, "Oh boy, the music is in high fidelity now," and that's uh, that sounds a lot better. Yes, the the stations you have to uh, WABC uh, was one of only 27 radio stations in America that were what they call clear channel. And I don't mean the company clear channel. I mean, they were, mm -hmm. uh, they were 50,000 Watts, one tower, the tower for WABC was in Lodi, New Jersey. And that signal could cover just about the entire United States. Wow. Uh, it was one, uh, even though there were 4,000 AM radio stations, there was only 27 of them like WABC that were clear channel. They were on uh, they were uninterfered with. You could hear them coast to coast. I could hear them in Florida. In fact, I, I still hear WABC here in, in Florida. Um, so that, yeah, yes, the, as the nighttime fell and the ionosphere layers, uh, the signals bounced off the layers of the ionosphere, the signals certainly went further than they did on FM radio. But 
the radio operator said, geez, we have this wasted medium here, FM. Let's give it to the new kids on the block. And with that, they opened up a lot of new formats uh, for new music, uh, underground music. You know, it was the the mothers of invention that came out with their first uh, first album. And, uh, and before you know it, uh, people were getting their FM converters and starting to listen to this uh, this new medium. And uh, many fell in love with it. And it was the decline of AM radio. And pretty much by 1973 or 74, AM radio was dead in the water. In New York City, the first FM station to dominate uh, WABC was WORFM. It was the station that played top 40 music. And uh, crystal clear, and they used to broadcast. They'd say in stereo. Well, of course, AM radio could never say that. It was it was broadcasting in stereo, and gee, the 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 people loved it. They loved the sound, and that became uh, became the uh, the demise demise rather of uh, AM radio. And ultimately, most AM stations became talk stations, and and WABC is very successful today as a talk station, right, as are different. its sister stations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So do you think basically, I mean, what do you feel about radio now? If you were going to make a speech about radio, do you think radio with the, you know, heart radio and I don't even know half of them. What are some of them? Sirius XM. Yeah. You know, it's become satellite. Yeah. Everything's not local any longer. It's, it's more pretty much anywhere you are, you can listen to the same music. doesn't matter where, where you are in the country or in the world for that matter. Yeah. Well, I think live and local will always win. Uh, So, Let's uh, discuss that. I mean, uh, really, AM or FM or Sirius or XM or Internet is just a delivery platform. Uh, Think of it as the way, you know, like a newspaper, maybe printed on paper, like the old Gutenberg Press from the 1400s, or it might come to you digitally. It's just a delivery platform. So the question is, how do we get our entertainment? Obviously, there's a lot more diverse ways than when we were sitting there with an AM radio in our car or in our home. So now we have multiple choices, just like the cable system. When I was a kid, we had one television channel in our market, and then we had three, and now there's probably 300. So there's, there's a lot more competition for eyeballs and ears than ever before. But I still think that um, local audio, local entertainment, wherever that comes to you from, you know, there's absolutely most radio stations now are available on streaming platforms and you can hear them in crystal clear. Even if they're an AM station, you could still hear them crystal clear via the Internet. So uh, I am um, I don't I can tell you that statistically radio there, are, I think about 330 million Americans uh, right now. And they say that about 293 of the 300 million Americans still use terrestrial over the air radio every week so think about that that's that's like 90 some percent of americans Mm -hmm. population listen to their their am or fm radio every week most of them in their car i mean that's the the medium of choice to this day so but it's also free right so if it's looking at something so i work in telecommunications and um not that you have to work in telecommunications (laughs) to know this but (laughs) basically you know if the power goes out and you have a regular analog rotary phone and you plug it into the wall, it should work um, as long as you have yeah. a regular old phone line. Now everybody comes in with Fios or, you know, Spectrum and they have their internet, their phone through the internet. Well, it's not going to work. But if you had your phone through an old copper infrastructure, 
it, it dial tone will work even when the power's out. You know, your yeah. phone will yeah. work. Right. Uh, you're getting dial tone from to the central of, office, but but it kind of goes back to radio. You know, it's like when the power's out. You know, every, especially now. I mean, everything goes out. Yeah. It, it's not even now. It's not even when the power goes out. So when the power used to go out, you couldn't function because yeah. you didn't have any power. Well, now you can have power, but the internet goes down. And people are looking at each other like, what do I do? And you're like, well, I don't know, read a book or yeah. talk to each other or something. But they like, you know, like, especially my kids, it's like the world ended. Um, yeah. But back to the point, that's not just a radio, but back to radio is, you know, if you have an old rate, if you have a regular radio and you can tune it in. Right. And you're not collecting that signal over the Internet or something. It doesn't matter if the power is on or off and it doesn't you're not paying for it. It's free. Right. So but it's funny, the younger generation, the they don't even know it's the think about that yeah no it's Uh, i was thinking there's no question i think that um yeah it's the uh yeah in times of emergencies we always turn to the the radio because it's live and it's local and and there'll be somebody that'll be helping us through the the toughest of times just like herb did during the hurricanes of 2003 francis and gene he was there you know being that comforting voice and that's what i think radio can always do you know we don't need any jukeboxes i mean if you want to hear just music you go to pan Pandora, Spotify, or get a subscription to that. But if you want to have a friend in your ear talking to you, it's it's going to be radio. And uh, that's why AM stations today do a lot of talk. I, in my own car, I like to listen to talk radio only because you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a friend traveling along with me. And I think we'll always have that. Um, you know, what's the future? What's tomorrow? I can only tell you that, uh, yeah, certainly radio's gotten beaten up because it's an old medium. It's, uh, it's 120 years old. So it's, you know, it's one of those, you can say it's certainly not a new medium, uh, but yet, uh, and I don't think that the, the, the gliss is off the, uh, the medium yet. I still think there's a radio heyday that will occur again. I don't know what it'll be. But my mother thought that the radio heyday was over when the big bands went out. Oh, you know she she sang with uh, she sang with a trio of girls, and they were with the big bands. And uh, about the 1940s, the tape recorder came in, and that was kind of the the undoing of the 300 employees that she worked with at this uh, radio station. And uh, so they thought that was the death of radio. Well, they they prognosticated that uh, a few decades too soon. Mm-hmm. Well, you wonder now, like Carla said at the beginning, is, you know, is the podcast, the modern talk show radio. Yeah. And, you know, people, I think podcasts have become very popular over the more recent years. And I think a lot of it's just talk, as we're mm-hmm. doing right now. You know, Jim, you obviously dealt with talk radio on the radio. And I don't know what your comparison to this would be to that. But um, it seems like that is maybe a new way to do it. And also just go to, to the technical piece of it is the podcasts are done now over the internet, right? Or, you know, whatever streaming media you have. But I wonder, because back to the phone industry, you know, the recently the FCC just mandated there that you no longer have to, um, companies no longer have to support copper infrastructure. So copper infrastructure is your regular old phone line into your mm-hmm. house and many things. So mm-hmm. no longer do, does the Verizons of the world and the, the phone companies have to maintain that. So it's not going to all go away, but there's a huge push to decommission a lot of that. Wow. So what, what will become of radio? You know, now you can still get a signal on a, on a, on a radio, uh, a transistor radio. Mm-hmm. But over time, will, will those towers come down? Yeah. You know, will, will that go away? You know, you just don't know. And over a course of time, maybe it will. You yeah. know, but it's un, it's it's unfortunate. But a lot of that old infrastructure, 
you know, ages out and, right. you know, it's, unfortunately don't the people don't know how to repair it or they don't want the expense of it. So it just, it'll be interesting to see what happens over time. Well, my dad always had a, had a statement. He always said, um, people, uh, underestimate the power of radio. And he said that close to the end of his life. And I have, I, I what do you think my dad meant by that? You know, I, the power of radio, I mean, it's used, like you said, it's been around for 120 years, but, uh, the power of radio. And when he said that, I think what, what you just said, Sue, you know, taking down the towers, it costs too much to maintain. Radio is going to change. It's going to be on the internet, obviously. And I, I always was wondering, what did he mean by that? Uh, I don't know what he meant by that, the power of the radio. Do you think it meant the power of reaching out to people, the power of uh, communicating with people? And like you said, his his voice was always there, friendly. And Maybe we're we're losing that way of communicating. Uh, that everything is done through the phone, through texting, through email. But we're we're losing that person on the radio talking to you. You know, it's it's not there anymore. Usually, I hear the personality piece, maybe, yeah. or the connection to the personality, right. or just that. Right. Yeah. yeah. I don't, I don't it. know. It's it's all about the product. It is. You know, uh, in 1967, I joined a radio station in Detroit. It was actually over the Canadian border, and the the uh, fellow that hired me said, you're coming to work for what people say is a bad Canadian radio station. He said, but I, I always believed that if we put great product on the air and we had great personalities and we gave people good reasons to listen, that, that it didn't matter what the, what the failings of our company were, that we were a daytime or we were FM or we were suburban or whatever, whatever the downfalls were, if we put great product on the air, people would listen and 20, 22% of the population listened to that station a year later. So it was from zero to number one in, in less than a year. And I think your dad's comment about, uh, yes, it's all about the product. Radio will always be. Now, you know, the, and Suzanne, you're correct. The, the, the forces will change. Uh, the, uh, the delivery method would change. Uh, BMW is dropping the AM radio out of its uh, product line this year. There will be no more AM radios in any BMW. The Teslas are trying to drop AM radio as well. Um, that's okay. It's, uh, you know, really the bottom line is uh, that uh, this will evolve into a different delivery system. I don't know what that be. You know, it might be fiber. Uh, who knows? It'll be wireless. It could be there's, uh, there may be a delivery system that's on the horizon that we don't know about. I mean, you know, product may come to our house by green light or, you know, yeah, blockchain. Uh, yeah. I, I, yeah. I don't know what that is, but I what know. I know is, I know. what I know is if you put great people on the air today and, and you market them and you, you know, tie them in and have them love their audience, the audience will love them back. And that's what Herb Oscar Anderson did. Well, I know what they're going to do to those Teslas and BMWs. Like in the 60s, they're going to get an AM converter and they're going to put it up <laughs> underneath their dashboard that they can get AM radio. There you go. That's right. That's <laughs> no, right. but I think you raise a good point, Jim. It's that it's it's not so much the content. How do I say this? The content is there. It's the delivery by which it is received. Right. right. That's the best yeah. way to say yeah. it. Well, so, yeah, but didn't my dad said, well, uh, that station is playing the same albums that we're playing, the same exact song. It's the delivery of how it's right. delivered and how people perceive it, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. Huh. that's interesting. Yeah. Now, Jim, just to go back a little bit, I, I don't know much of your history. So just while we're talking, what is, what is, how did you get into radio or how did you? I know you talked about your mom earlier, but what is a little bit more of maybe your, your journey? 
Okay. Well, uh, <laughs> it started very simple. I, I, I loved my mom. I loved hearing her on the radio. And uh, so when I was a kid, my, uh, my dad went to the Army surplus store and bought a microphone and a pair of old Army surplus earphones and put it together with a little battery and 20 feet of wire. And uh, my little neighborhood girlfriend, when I was six years old, her name was Paula Carvin. And uh, I would uh, talk Parla, uh, Carla into coming over and, and putting on the earphones and going into the other bedroom. And, and I would listen to the radio all day long and I'd get the, the jokes that the DJs were telling and, and I'd say them into the microphone to Carla, uh, I'm sorry, to Paula. And if I could hear Paula laughing in the other bedroom, I knew that you know, it was working. That was my earliest form of show preparation. And I said, this is what I want to do. And uh, I remember my mom bought me a pair of cufflinks. I used to sit in church with a nice white dress shirt on and a pair of cufflinks that were shaped like RCA microphones. <laughs> and uh, I was... Um, I would talk into my microphone uh, cufflinks while the preacher was preaching. So I knew at a very uh, young age what I wanted to do. Uh, at uh, about 12 years old, I started to pedal my bicycle out to uh, the local radio station and uh, hang out with the DJs who were playing rock and roll. Uh, the woman who managed the stations used to throw me out time and time again. She'd say, get out of here, kid. Get on your bike. Drive home. Do not come back. This is a business. Mm -hmm. But it's amazing, and though. And so when she'd throw me out. Pretty much every story that I've heard um, that we've talked to people, it seems like they all have the same uh, kind of story that they started channel surfing. Like I'd listen to this person, then I chained that person and this person, that person. I'd end up at the station and uh, you all seem like you were, you know, you were bitten by the bug at a very young age and all sort of had the same sort of similar progression from the radio Showing up to the station, hanging out, just hanging out there until someone would let you do something. <laughs> I don't we think were you like, listen. I, you couldn't do that now, could you? No, I mean radio had a farm club. I mean there was no question. Just like sports, a farm club. I mean if you were any good, they'd let you start on Sunday mornings uh, playing the tapes of religion. And then if you were better, they'd let you do the polka hour. And then if you were better, they'd let you do a nine hour shift on Sunday. And then if you were really good, you got to do the overnight show and, and you progressed through this farm club until you perfected your business. Of course, that farm club uh, doesn't exist anymore. But yeah, I, I hung around the station until finally the general manager, she said to me, kid, do you want to work here? And I said, yes, I absolutely do. She said, well, how old are you? I said, well, how old do you have to be? She said, you got to be 16. I said, well, I'm 16. I was a big kid, Carla. You know, yeah, I'm a tall yeah, guy. Yeah. And, um, you know, so um, I wasn't 16. I was 14. But uh, <laughs> she hired me for 90 cents an hour and all the records I could steal. And and uh, <laughs> that was that was kind of my my roots in radio. And and from there, it was a, a lot of different moves through a lot of different markets. Uh, I always tried to keep my eye on the ball to say, uh, if it's a bigger market, if it's a better job, it's a better pay. If it's a better position, a better day part, I will take the job. Well, that required moving a lot, and I right. did. I moved a lot. I had my eyeball on New York City. I made that in 1970 uh, at WORFM in New York, uh, which was the station that competed against WABC. Mm -hmm. And I went from there into uh, program management. Uh, I worked for ABC Broadcasting in uh, Chicago, ran their FM station, uh, WDAI, uh, went into programming at a number of different stations. I wound up my last programming position. I worked for Gene Autry, the legendary mm -hmm. singing cowboy yeah. in Los Angeles at his uh, flagship radio station, KMPC. 
and uh, then began a career in uh, general management and ownership and uh, and then just retired from it uh, recently, although my son and I still have a little agency business that we do uh, we do uh, radio and TV commercials. Uh, so, you know, uh, uh, the bug the bug bit a long time ago. Right. Well, that's amazing. But it, it's funny because our, our producer, John, was also in the, in the radio and he was telling us, well, if you, you're not on radio unless you haven't been fired. And <laughs> so, so but then, you know, you know, Joe Condon, you know him very well. Sure. He sat down and, and John said, well, you know, what's your history of radio? And he, I've been at the same radio for 60 years. And we all, John was like, threw his hands up in the air. He's like, well, whatever yeah. I just told you just went right out the window because Joe Condon. But that was my dad's, I, me too. I was like, okay, he, where was he? And my mom would say, okay, I think he was here for, you know, six months. And then he went over here and then he went up there and yeah. then he went down there. And uh, that's where he fell in love with Florida. I think he was in Florida for a very short period of time, but he always said yeah. I was going to come back to Florida. But him too. It was like a boomerang. He was there, 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 there. Just, I guess, yeah. too, wherever you got the opportunity to get to New York, that was everybody's goal, wasn't it? It wasn't so much Los Angeles. Los Angeles was a little bit behind. Am I correct in thinking about Los Angeles and the West Coast for radio? Absolutely. All of uh, all of the dominance of uh, of the rock and roll format really happened on the East Coast, no question about it. Uh, it kind of ended in Chicago. That was about as far west as you went for the for the great radio stations, so like WLS in Chicago, which stood for the world's largest store, mm -hmm. uh, that was a, a fabulous radio station. But uh, you know, when you think of the legends, uh, they're all Philadelphia, New York uh, 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 radio stations in Detroit, uh, Buffalo, WKBW, uh, uh, great rock and roll influence, um, uh, WBZ, the Westinghouse station in New England. Uh, Terrific radio and well, why innovative. Why do you think that radio. was? Why, why do you? Why was that such a East Coast thing? Is there a reason for that? I think because um, over fifty percent of the population of the United States lives within a five hundred mile range of New York City. Mm. Um, interesting statistic, but yeah, uh, obviously this this business is driven by ears, and uh, the more ears, the merrier. The more ears, the more money. So I think that those stations had the ability to invest in better product and hire better disc jockeys. And uh, also many of these 27 clear channel radio stations were also on the East coast. Mm -hmm. Did they ever catch up to the East coast, the West? The, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think yeah. that the, uh, there were a lot of copycats. I mean, there were stations that I think that, uh, copied the WABC format West of the Mississippi river, mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, California radio was dominated by KHJ in Los Angeles, which was, uh, there was a, there was a consultancy, uh, uh, Bill Drake and Gene Chenault put together a, a consultancy where they, they formatted this very East coast sounding radio station on the West coast. And it did very well. Yeah. Um, it was a, you no, know, no, a was more that just music. the content. It was the kind of the content that would give it the East coast sound, or are you talking sound like quality of sound? Fast moving, I think more than anything, Suzanne. It was a, it was kind of like a, uh, you know, it was a fast paced. When you know, when you think of people, New York people move fast. Uh, California is uh, very laid back. Uh, so, you know, um, the New York stations had this rapid fire delivery. It was kind of I used to describe it. It was kind of like a a well oiled machine gun or or a fine Swiss watch that operated with such precision that it was 
in a uh, very rapid pace and and you know it it met up with the lifestyles i think of the of the people of the east coast um and so the west coast uh, folks copied it with having very short little jingles that went 93 khj you know and mm-hmm. And, uh, and disc jockeys that were limited to 10 seconds in their rap and, and to uh, just keep it moving and very up-tempo, yeah, fast-paced. fast-paced. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Now, just, yep. just on that topic, what what was radio or what is radio even like in other countries? I don't really even know. I mean, I know I've been traveled to Europe and didn't quite seem as sophisticated as here maybe, but that was, well, I was in Ireland. I could only get one station. But I don't know what it's supposed to be like there, you know, or even in Canada. Is it even close? You know, a, a lot of it is, um, of course, uh, the British Broadcasting Corporation is government-owned. Mm-hmm. The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation is government-owned. Okay. Uh, if you own a radio in Canada, as an example, you must pay an annual license fee to listen to that radio. Wow. And uh, th- that money goes to support government radio. Uh, you could say we have government radio here in the United States to some extent in that we have national public uh, radio, which mm-hmm. is c- certainly government-supported, but the bulk of the broadcast Broadcasting in America is uh, is free enterprise. Um, there is some of that. Uh, uh, Europe has uh, some uh, non governmental stations, but uh, but again, they they're uh, not of the uh, the high power. As an example, that the uh, I visited the BBC uh, when I was a kid, and it is it, needless to say, it's a palace. It's the finest of everything. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but again, it's not. Uh, I wouldn't call that the people's radio. Um, uh, there's a little effete snobbery that goes along with the BBC, and some might say that there's effete snobbery that goes along with NPR. I, mm, yeah, you know, I, yeah. I, I can't address that. I, you know, I'm a listener, but I, but I understand the concept that it's not the people's radio. If you want to reach the people, you have to program. I used to call our average listeners. I'd say the average listener. I, I refer to them as Joe and Ida potatoes. You know, they're they're just simple people. They, <laughs> yes. and that's. That, that's the bulk of who our listeners are. They're simple people. And, you know, uh, and that's, I, I say that with love for them. I mean, they, they deserve to have, you know, what we, uh, what we can give them and uh, they don't have to be of a certain particular class in order for us to, uh, to program to them. Well, that's sort of interesting when my dad, I don't know if this is true or not, but my dad said when he first came to WABC that everybody was sort of, uh, going for the people on Fifth Avenue, the higher class, you know, the people that had the the money. And, and my dad sort of switched it around, and he did it, like you said, for the common everyday person in New York City. And I had brought this up before in another podcast uh, show that we did, but do you think that uh, pretty much is, is true, with that statement, that it was New York at that time was different? It was you know, for that upper class person. And then when the sixties came around and my dad came around, they changed it and it was basically for everybody. Yeah. I think that's absolutely valid, Carl. I think, you know, looking back at the mid sixties, I can't exactly quote numbers, but I would say that, um, a slightly less than maybe 20% of the New York Metro population was non-white. Uh, this would be uh, primarily black, Hispanic, uh, and other cultures. Um, uh, New York, by its design, is a melting pot. It's a a lot of different folks. And yes, of course, there is the Park Avenue crowd, but uh, they're not the ones that are ringing the cash registers. So I think uh, you know this is a results-driven business. You know, if if you can move product off the shelves, 
Uh, you can get into people's homes, make them love you, love the product. Uh, uh, that's uh, that's what uh, we aim to do. Well, and, uh, uh, just to sort of uh, hit on that, but I have a, a Heinz vegetarian baked bean ad that my dad did. <clears throat> Excuse ah. me. And it was uh, for those Lent, you know, during Lent when you can't eat meat, have Heinz right. beans. And then I know he, for some, I don't remember what, Jewish holiday it was, but my dad played some song on the radio for the Jewish holiday, and he did quite a few things that was uh, wasn't taboo, but I don't think it was. Well, radio kind of had to be. I mean, I would think radio sort of had to be. I would say unbiased. Maybe it's not the right word, or or an almost classless in terms of different classes of people. Like anybody could turn on a radio. It didn't right. matter. Multicultural. If you were, right. Yeah. Right. It didn't matter where you were from, what, you know, what your religious beliefs are, what your ethnic background was, where, where you came from and what your social status was or your financial, yeah. you know, where, where you were uh, financially, anybody could turn on the radio and they could choose which dial they stop or where, where they'd stop the dial. Right. It, my father was right, a bright so old you man. You kind of had to. I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt, but I'm just saying, I guess my thought is my thought makes sense. I'm just, I'm asking. It didn't matter who listened. So you sort of had to play to the masses or? Well, I think my dad, I think he said at first it was to the the Park Avenue mm -hmm. is what radio was. They wanted you to do because. Well, you know, and then my dad sort of said like, hey, it's, you know, the guy that bakes the bread in the bakery, say hello to him, say, and thank him for what he does. And. I think he brought it more down, like you said, to the common man, to the common man, and that, that maybe that's why he was so endeared to a lot of people is because he wasn't going up to Park Avenue as much as he was coming down to the masses. And he was not ashamed to be who he was. I mean, he was a spiritual man. You know, he was a guy who uh, would sing a hymn on the air every once in a while. And, uh, you know, I, I think my father used to say to me, son, my suggestion to you when you go on the radio is to, is to try to avoid certain subjects. He said, I wouldn't talk about religion or politics or sports. He said, because a lot of the people will ha have opinions of their own. And if you, uh, you know, get into that arena, uh, half of the people won't like you. And why would you possibly want to lose half your audience? And so, yeah, I mean, you can say that there's been people who violated that rule. Uh, Rush Limbaugh obviously was right. on one side of the argument, but, and he was very popular, but as a general rule, I followed dad's advice and that was, uh, kind of be everything to all people if you can. Yeah. Uh, right. Right. And, Try to, and not to offend anybody. Yeah. Right. That's pretty much. Yeah. Well, I don't, th I don't know how he could have time to offend anybody. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Yeah. Right. You, like you said, it was fast pace. It was how many seconds would they be allowed to talk? 10 seconds? Uh, there wasn't, yeah, I would say that was probably about right. You know, the average introduction to a song is less than uh, 15 seconds. And so the disc jockey was allowed to talk over the beginning of the song until the vocal started. It was called hitting the post or uh, you know, hitting the cue. And, uh, and that was an art in itself. It was like you had to cram your verbiage into a place where you could uh, actually talk up to the vocal and create a lot of excitement about the artist you were about to play. And as your dad used to say, the curtain is always going up. So right. we were always uh, having that forward momentum. Well, that's probably why he sang with most of the songs, because 15 seconds is not enough time for him. So he just did a little talk, <laughs> and then he sang. Yeah. <laughs> he sang with the album.
Well, like I say, we threw every rule out of the rule book when we did Herb's show uh, here in uh, in South Florida. It was a matter of uh, yeah, just opening up uh, the, the the radio to have the master himself just uh, tell the stories. Uh, it was uh, unbelievable. I, I Best storyteller I've ever sat in front of a microphone with. He was just amazing. And, and when did he when did he finish up in Florida? Uh, shortly before he passed, I mean, he and I were talking, uh, uh, you know, at, uh, uh, gosh, uh, we were we were t- talking right up to the end. We were talking about doing, we had done some shows remotely from Hoosick Falls, mm-hmm. and he would do them on the phone. I would, uh, uh, kind of like we're, you know, uh, you and I connect up digitally, and uh, and he was, uh, he would tell his stories, and we would edit them here in Florida and air them for the people who knew that he was on his uh, winter vacation of some sort, and uh, uh, it was. Uh, yeah, that was a course, lifeline uh, for him. J- those shows. Yep, that j- was really a lifeline for him. You know? He died in 2017, right. uh, January 2017, and at that point, we had just wrapped up uh, doing some uh, some winter broadcasts. Uh, uh, but I loved when he would talk about the farm and Hoosick Falls, and uh, <laughs> uh, he and he and Terry, of course, were snowbirds. They divided their time between here and Hoosick right. Falls. And Carla, I know you and your hubby Jose have a beautiful farm there, and Herb was right at home. When uh, I think when most men might seek out an antique car, Herb bought an old Ford 9N tractor. Oh. I don't know if you remember that. It had oh, the, the, bright, that. the bright red engine and the gray the body. Umbrella. And, yeah. You have the umbrella oh. on top. <laughs> he and, and he would ride the fields in his old 9N Ford. Uh, the farmer at heart he was. Oh, he loved that. He would, used to help Jose make hay quite a bit. And yep. uh, he would get on that tractor and he, he always said that those tractors, when they hit like potholes or a golfer hole, that the wheels, uh, the steering wheel would just spin. And my dad, his poor thumbs, you know, they get stuck. Yeah. In the, in <laughs> well, the, the, the steering wheel yeah. would go spinning and then your thumbs get caught in this. And, but he loved it. He wouldn't change it for the world. And, uh, yeah, he loved uh, lamb chops, that's for sure. So Jose made sure he was amply supplied with lamb. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was, you know, he had, uh, you know, my two brothers who went into sort of, um, we're going to be talking to John in a couple days, but, you know, two brothers who went into uh, a different form, uh, went into acting. And, and then there was his only little girl who became literally the black sheep of the family became the farmer uh, sheep farmer yeah. sheep farmer yeah. which is you know hello that's out there i didn't know anything about sheep nothing you know you what? i, I, I think didn't he know was anything. always he, he was always so proud uh carla of his family i mean the the three kids herb junior and yeah. john james anderson and uh, and you were frequently uh, talked about on our on our show he he just delighted he lit up when he talked about you and uh, he gave me many stories about how john had his starring role in Dynasty on TV as uh, Jeff Colby, and uh, you know it was just um, it was part of the humble, humble, uh, humble herb that just uh, touched all of our hearts. It was uh, yeah. Uh, I got to know him very well because he was an open book. He really was. Yeah, he was. It, his family was everything. I mean, and uh, basically, all my family is from the Midwest. So we, Dad only had I think one week vacation, and maybe Sundays yeah. off when he was working. So basically we would drive to Minnesota, Wisconsin and drive back. And that was, that was pretty much our vacation. Cause right. He worked six he, days a week. 
And he was so valued and he probably has told you the story, but uh, he was valuable property for WABC, needless to say. And when it came time for a contract renewal and Herb did not have an agent, uh, he was uh, working by himself and Hal Neal, who was the president of ABC radio, called him into the office and said, Herb, we want to renew you for a new contract. And, uh, Herb said, well, what do you have in mind? And uh, Hal said, here's a blank check. He said, write a number on it that you feel is right. And Herb wrote a large number, <laughs> passed the check across the side of the desk, and Hal Neal put his signature at the bottom of that check. Yeah. He never had contracts either. I mean, if he wrote something, he wrote it Didn't on a piece him. of paper. He just said, uh, you know, I get this, this, this. Okay, shook hands, and that was it. It was nothing ever really with a, a lawyer or anything. He was just right. take people at their word. Yeah, know, I guess that's just how he was. Yep. So, well, Jim, you know, we're going to let you go, and I just want to thank you so much for your time, and uh, you've been wonderful. It, it, your insight into radio is fantastic, and myself, I was young at the time, and, and uh, I just, he was just my dad, so, you know, nothing yeah. special, and and Sue, just being a, a few years younger than I am, um, we find this very exciting, um, something that we wanted to learn more about, and especially about my father. And I just appreciate your time. Yeah, it's very interesting and, you know, you're interesting in your own right. So thank okay. you for yes. being so uh, humbled and taking time to talk an, today. It's an honor to be here. And if I could pay tribute to your dad every day, I would do that. He's uh, etched deeply in my heart. I I. I will always uh, remember him fondly and love him in my heart. Well, I know he's looking down. He's looking down, giving yeah. us the thumbs up. That's right. <laughs> that, Amen. <laughs> so, yep. okay, Jim. Well, thank you so much. And um, goodbye. God bless. And I thank you so very much. Oh, we got to do the happy feeling. One more time. Do you remember... All right, let's do it, everybody, one more time. When I was a little feller, my papa used to say to me, Son, you'll find that happy feeling, a simple technicality. Thanks again for listening to the Return of the Morning Mayor podcast. If you're hearing my voice right now, there's a good chance you want to hear more about HOA. The story of the man behind the Morning Mayor is one that certainly needs to be told, and a goal is to have this story made into a movie. The script is written, and your support will help us get to the next level. If you feel motivated to do so, click the Donate button in the About section. All proceeds will go towards seeing the story of Herbert Oscar Anderson on the big screen. Goodbye. God bless, and I thank you so very much.